Yo. Hey. What's up? This is Ergo. It is indeed. I'm Damon. I'm Kiss. And we are here, as always, having conversations that showcase people reshaping the culture of our city and beyond for the more equitable and creative. How are you feeling? My more and more well-dressed friend. <laughs> what a compliment. Week by week, just stepping it up. I'm going to come in in like a tuxedo in 2023. Yep, yep, that's what we're heading towards. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm excited to get into this conversation that we had with Frank Berg, a man who is very close to both of our hearts and thinks about things and talks about things in ways that no one we've had on the show does. Frank is an amazing organizer, engineer, and I think just builder of community as a part of Emmaus House of Catholic Workers uh, Living Community, which we talk about the legacy of, as well as Surge, an organization showing up for racial justice. Um, He was an immeasurable contributor to the Let Us Breathe Collective and folks who've listened to this show extensively know that the Let Us Breathe Collective is inextricably linked to my life and the show at yeah. large. And so he's a significant person. We, we we talk about themes about, you know, showing up, accounting for privilege, you know, some of the precariousness around whiteness in proximity to liberation and black liberation space. Um, we talk about engineering and, you know, meeting infrastructure necessities throughout yeah, the world. Dude is literally spending like by the time this comes out, he is in the middle of the Democratic Republic of the Congo building micro power grid systems there. So that's where Frank is today. Yeah. Where are you? <laughs> so this is a great conversation. Uh, somebody who I love and respect, and it was uh, a beautiful opportunity to be able to offer some flowers or show some love that you know doesn't often happen or it might not be appropriate to happen in all spaces. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation with the one, the only Frank Berg. We are in the studio. Where with- we record. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else we would do in here. <laughs> We're in here with a wonderful person and a wonderful smile. Frank Berg is here. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Great to be here. <laughs> oh, go for it. I broke that one out. That's a first. Quality horse. Thanks. <laughs> All right, Frank. I love you, Frank. Good to see you. <laughs> we, we like to start off with a, with a little tradition of a two-part question. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, but in this time, and define time however you want, this hour, this day, week, season, lifetime, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? I love this question. I'm a big fan. Um, how yeah. is the world treating me? Um, the world is keeping me on my toes um, these days. I, I was just telling Daniel before the show, I'm, this is my, I'm in a period of, you know, 10 out of 12 weeks in, in Africa, you know, this season. <laughs> so, so you caught me on the two weeks that I'm home. <laughs> What's up? Um, and, you know, h- home, but, but not like really at, at peace in that way, because there's, you know, planning and, and doing one thing to another, but the... You can't even unpack for two weeks. No, the, <laughs> well, enough for the laundry and then, <laughs> and then right back in the same bag. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the world is treating me with, you know, a lot of adventures. I mean, I guess this is a, it's a season where, um, a lot's being uh, demanded of me in ways that, you know, typically kind of when life is a little bit more stable, that there's not the same opportunity for growth. Um, and I've been, you know, blessed and fortunate with a lot of really, really amazing people on the other end of these trips um, mm-hmm. that, that help make everything work. How am I treating the world? I think I'm, I'm pretty inquisitive right now. I'm learning a lot, um, kind of coming in with beginner's eyes to a lot of situations, um, mm-hmm. kind of trying to be young at heart, <laughs> young in my mind and, and not... Um, not just humble, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about this more in the interview, but, you know, doing doing work in, in Africa, much like 
doing work in North Lawndale, you know, you got to got to take your boots off before you go into somebody else's living room. You mm. know, it's not it's not about the stuff I'm bringing with me. It's about what's here already. Mm. Um, so kind of that attitude is trying to tread lightly mm. Um, mm-hmm. at this point. So first of all, that makes perfect sense to hear you frame it that way. And part of what I'm so excited to to talk about with you and, and what I think, you know, so much of what we do here is rounding out why people do the things they do, not just talking about the things they do. Um, but I, I think one thing that would be good to start is in this chapter that involves, you know, two weeks here, 10 weeks not, what is it that you're doing and how you understand it? And we can start there, but then I also want to get to like, Three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, yeah. what were your answers to those questions, and, and did you think that they were going to lead here? That is an enormous question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's really no way that I could have, you know, predicted this. I think, I think if the the version of myself that was doing life five years ago could see this version of myself, I think it'd be like, that's really cool, <laughs> but didn't didn't necessarily yeah. see it coming. Mm-hmm. You know, would um, you say five years ago Frank would admire today? Yeah, Frank. but also today Frank admires five years ago Frank uh, in, in a different way and for different reasons, mm, you know. Well, fr- quite frankly, it seems like a <laughs> oh, good place no. to be. <laughs> Pack it up. We're going home. We're going home. No edit need. that out, but don't edit that out. Like, I'm, That's a joke. Actually, I want people to hear it. I'm going to loop, loop it. Loop it. Yeah, and I want people to hear me say it, edit it out. Quite frankly. Quite frankly. Edit that out. Edit that out. <laughs> so what is it that you're doing? What is today Frank doing? We'll start with I live in Emmaus House in North Lawndale, which is um, intentional community in the Catholic worker movement. What that means is that we make space for folks in, in our home, in our living space, not in some agency, not in some 501c3, not with some tax write-off, but um, in, in our house. There's eight people living in six bedrooms, and a lot of times the people who live in the house are the people who need those bedrooms more than we do. Um, so while I'm on the road, usually there's someone in my bed, um, and if there's folks in need, then we have kind of a, a speakeasy method of hospitality uh, as a network of folks that help us find uh, people in need. Um, And that's just kind of a way of kind of living out our values right at home. There's more empty bedrooms in Chicago than there are homeless people, which means homelessness is a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, So over the years, those choices have taken different shapes for us. But, you know, formerly incarcerated folks, illegal immigrants, um, refugees, um, Muslim refugees in one case, um, survivors of human trafficking, folks actively dealing with substance abuse. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to, to trivialize any of those experiences or to kind of brag on it, but just those are the people who've lived in our spare bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, you keep it, saying we and our. Who is this, this mythical we? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, the members of Emmaus House, just like a family to me. I mean, I, I think um, the, you know, for my 20s and, and early 30s, um, you know, I, I don't have a, a family of my own. You know, I'm not in my, not really... My parents' house, I'm not, don't have, you know, kids or family of my own. And, and so the, the Emmaus House community has, is basically a family structure. Mm-hmm. I think the only way that resistance makes sense to me is in community. The people who I look up to in resistance movements and in social justice movements are always acting in community, part of a larger whole. And so that, that family, that kind of chosen family is the Emmaus House. <laughs> Your story is very personal to me because... And we'll get to that. Um, so I just want to like, I'm just happy to have you here. Uh, Emmaus House has been really important. Um, but I want to go back because, you know, in ways I'm connected now to the Catholic worker tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I try to explain it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I do a pretty good job. 
Um, because for me, the history I know definitely evokes something much different than just like what the language does for people. Like when people hear it, they're kind of like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. Catholic charities, Catholic church, Catholic, okay, mm-hmm. you know, I get it. Catholics mm-hmm. being Catholics. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, I want to just get some of the history of how you understand it, how you came into that tradition, yep. what it means, and what are some of the like maybe misnomers or things that you often correct or need yeah. to clarify for people to fully grasp it. Yeah, so the Catholic worker movement is an 85-year old social movement. Um, we often joke, we say, you know, the Catholic worker movement, we're not all Catholic and we don't all work. Um, <laughs> so, so try to figure that out. Um, the, uh, the, the movement was started in 1933 in New York City in the Bowery, the Lower East Side. And um, the, the co-founders, Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, were actually very different people. Um, and they started it first as a newspaper. Why the Catholic worker? Well, um, you know, Dorothy Day is someone who's, you know, a personal hero of mine. Um, the person who, when Pope Francis came to speak at, in the Senate, he, he held Dorothy Day up as one of the like role models mm-hmm. for Catholics in America mm-hmm. alongside Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Merton. And so, so one of the, f- who was the last one? Thomas Merton? Who's Thomas that? Merton is a, is a monk. Um, mm. who lived most of his adult years in Kentucky and is a, a spiritual writer. So I, so, I probably need to step my monk game up. I, I couldn't just name any monks. Yeah. And it seems interesting. I, yeah. I need, I need to, we need to do some, some monk deep diving at some yeah. point over here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you know one monk, it's Thomas Merton. All right, I'm going to start um, there. I really He's... thought you were going to say, if you know one monk, you know him all. <laughs> no. no. Not no, true, no, but no, just no, a funny no. one. <laughs> no. Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton actually had a, had a correspondence with letter writing to each other. Her mm. in, the, in the heart of New York City and him in a cloistered monastery in Kentucky mm. where he couldn't even leave the grounds. Most, mm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. point is, Dorothy Day at that time in America was kind of a social conscience. She's this started the, the the Catholic peace movement. I mean, one of the things that she's very notorious for was opposing, you know, World War II mm-hmm. and and every war since because of that stance that was pretty radical at the time. The yeah. church has been very militaristic in in terms of its at least its at the time um, that was something where the Catholic worker movement was leading leading the nation and in, in holding the church accountable. Um, institutional <laughs> religion is a very dangerous thing at mm. times in, in mm. world history, and we've seen the the Catholic worker movement finds its way to be an independent voice. Um, certainly, one of the words is Catholic, um, but it's the Catholic worker because Dorothy Day came into this work as a journalist, mostly following the worker movement. Mm, you know, right. like mm-hmm. the you know working in in socialist and communist publications um, during the Great Depression which is the context, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and recognizing a critique of capitalism and recognizing uh, a critique of the kind of the social norms of the time. So Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, they start this newspaper, and then they just start letting people into their house. It became a house of hospitality for folks who were out of work, mostly, you know, sleeping on couch, cots, sleeping on the floor, and then starting a soup kitchen and just, just doing it all kind of organically. I mean, I guess a, an ideology more than a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to this day, there's still a Catholic worker newspaper that's sold for the original price of one penny. You can subscribe. We're raking it in, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could subscribe to the paper. There's probably uh, over 200 Catholic worker houses worldwide. There's <laughs> three in Chicago wow. at the moment. It's, a, it's an anarchist movement. It's not, there's no formal relationship. There's no relationship at all between Catholic worker movement and the Catholic Church. And there's no formal relationship at all between the Catholic worker houses. There's no common creed there's no like these rules you need to follow hmm. 
they were more of an organism than an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, what and, is the so? What are the informal relationships between the houses? Yeah, so the, in the Midwest, the 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 houses in the Midwest and again, who self-identify as Catholic workers and who self-identify as being in the Midwest, meet up <laughs> twice a year. Well, you are walking some fine lines here. I mean, I mean, the, 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 yeah, so there's a, there's a retreat in the, in September, which is like a big family reunion. And there's mm-hmm. always a retreat in the, in the spring, which is uh, the faith and resistance retreat, which generally results in folks breaking the law for, for a good cause. Yeah. Um, that at, at times that's been, you know, breaking into the Enbridge construction of Line 3, the pipeline in Minnesota, Mm -hmm. and just shutting down construction for a day, taking over the pipe yard, occupying it. You know, another another time we shut down construction at a a new nuclear bomb manufacturing facility in Kansas City. Wherever we feel called to be in the spring, well, we we meet up and... And I think that's probably the history that most distinguishes the Catholic worker from other... I guess, spiritually or faith-oriented spaces Mm -hmm. um, is that even those who can have like a a consciousness or a critique of state or of power, the activity is usually just like, and then let's build community, right? We'll do the- Or we'll be in service. Right, you know, but but you do all the service, you do the community, uh, but the support of, and then the initiation of direct action, I think is what led to me having like a, a deep trust and respect for the space um, yeah. that I think is really unique. I don't know if other like models or contemporary examples of all of those things kind of coinciding. Yeah, I really don't either. <laughs> so for you, when did you, when did you get connected to that history? Did you learn about it growing up and then find it or did you find it and then learn the history? Yeah. So I, uh, I mean, I knew ab- abstractly who Dorothy Day was and things like that, like in high school and college, but I'd never, you know, stepped into a Catholic worker house until I was living in Kansas City after college, mm-hmm. um, 2008, and went to the Holy Family Catholic worker house. You know, it was, it was kind of a beautiful moment for me because, I, you know, I'm living in, in Kansas City, just graduated college. I don't really know anybody in Kansas City. At the time, I was working for a consulting firm as a, you know, entry-level engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Cincinnati. Okay. Grew up in Cincinnati, went to college in St. Louis. Now I'm living in Kansas City, Really, mostly no coworkers. Felt pretty lonely, you know, working in a cubicle and that, that type of stuff is just at the time like there was nothing that was like really like, gratifying. How was the world treating me yeah. anonymously? You know. <laughs> um, so, anyways, to cut to the chase. You know, I, I signed up for a volunteer opportunity. You know, gonna gonna serve dinner at this soup kitchen, whatever Catholic worker house. Let's see what that's all about. You know, and I met amazing people there. The people who who ran the Holy Family House at that time, you know, was Brother Lewis, who is, you know, a religious brother living mm-hmm. um, in the house, and then three Lasallian volunteers, so like AmeriCorps folks living in the house. Hmm. And after after you know, two hours of serving, you know, mashed potatoes and roast beef to probably 200 plus people in their own house, out of their own kitchen, they said, hey, you want to stick around and we're going to serve leftovers. And then, uh, you know, a priest showed up and like, blue jeans and said, yeah, actually, let's do mass tonight. Let's, let's do like the, the whole Catholic mm. mass in the living room. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was, I had been there for like four hours at this point, And I was like, this, you know, this, is this like for as anonymous as I feel in the cubicle farm, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like pulling teeth to ask somebody about their weekend. And it's like, you know, yeah, I was at home. Okay. Go back to your desk. You know? <laughs> um, but to have that like experience where I'm speaking with folks who are financially very vulnerable, you know, socially very vulnerable, but spilling their life story. I mean, people who are experiencing homelessness, you know, hungry for food, but also hungry for community, just like yeah. I was. I have actually many of the same needs as, as some of these folks. I also, I have some different needs mm-hmm. than what they have. And, but there is a beauty to that 
kind of unity that I experienced there that mm-hmm. kind of kept me coming back. So before that experience and before you were in Kansas City growing up, what was your uh, relationship or your family's relationship to either the serving the roast beef and mashed potatoes or the doing the mass in somewhere? What, how, where were yeah. those strands connected in you before that? Yeah, so... Um, uh, Basically, I'm asking, what was your God game like as a kid? Yeah, you know, I come from from a very Catholic uh, family. Mm-hmm. Um, both my parents, at one point in their life, have worked for the Catholic Church um, <laughs> in in some capacity. So, my grandmothers are both very strong matriarchs of the family. Very, very religious. Um, my my one grandmother passed uh, recently in 2014, and there were six priests on the altar for the funeral. It was just, it's, you know, it's a family that you know, the church is very much a part of who we are, um, but not in a not in a holier than thou kind of a way. More about kind of taking into consideration, you know, the, the fundamental dignity of human people and mm-hmm. uh, and understanding how to serve one another. That's what Christianity is for a lot of people. But I think in my memories of growing up, you know, church is always. Is always part of it. You know, would never go visit some place without. If it's Sunday, we're going to be at church mm-hmm. wherever we are. Mm-hmm. To fast forward a little bit, just even in the intro, right? Like you named the, some of the contradictions and the harms mm-hmm. historically of the yeah. institutional church and, yeah. and and institutionalized religion, and that's something I relate to, right? Like you know. My grandmother has a parking space at her church. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously, like, the black church and, like, the Catholic church, like, have totally different histories. But a a similarity of being raised or being nurtured within a certain tradition, coming to maybe a politic or consciousness or communal experience or an intellectual historical experience, where for me, I had to, not in a hateful way, but outright reject the institution, Mm -hmm. reject even the philosophy in order to like form my own and now figure out respectful ways to engage it. Um, so how for you with your family that I would say you describe as devout, um, mm-hmm. how is y'all's relationship on you working through these tensions now or ever? Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I would say, you know, if my, <laughs> if you ask my parents, you know, I, I think me coming up in this tradition, just like a lot of other people who come up in a Catholic tradition, my current interpretation of that tradition and, the fruit that it's bearing in in my life is is a little bit different, and and that's just because I take it literally, you know, or, or you could <laughs> yeah. say, um, you know, where you know both my parents work for the church, and I live in a Catholic worker house. Like, whoops, you know, <laughs> should have seen should have seen that coming. Uh, <laughs> have no one to blame but themselves. <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah. And both of my sisters, I have two younger sisters, yeah. Maria, Shout the middle Maria, Maria who's yeah. been involved with a lot of stuff yeah. with Let Us Breathe, and she lives, used to live in Sukasa. Yeah. She's still living in a Catholic worker house in Minnesota. And then Rebecca, the youngest in Philly, lived in an intentional community, part of the Simple Way community, which is not part of the Catholic Worker Movement, but it's a similar movement mm-hmm. called the New Monastic Movement, mm-hmm. which is a more recent type, similar, similar, mm-hmm. but mostly um, evangelical Protestant. So as you were talking, Dave, and asking that question, I came to a realization, which is that like we've talked about religion in various ways on the show. We've never really talked about white church. <laughs> like in any, because I have no experience with it. Damon doesn't have that much experience with it. Like that's yeah, just I've not. I've seen it a couple of times. We, yeah, I've, not, I've popped my head yeah. in. But <laughs> yeah. just like nothing's a monolith, I want to be respectful in this. So I'm wondering, other than the Catholic worker, in your understanding of like the movements that people are making, mm-hmm. what's the really cool shit happening? Yeah. That like is driven from these traditions or from these lineages. Yeah, so philosophically, mm-hmm. one of the things that helped make church real for me and make me fully committed to what this is about is the liberation theology movement. So there's mm-hmm. this like tradition of liberation theology 
couple different sub-traditions, if you will, but, you know, kind of born in the liberation struggles of Latin America, Gustavo Gutierrez, John Sabrino, Ignacio Iacoria, Oscar Romero, all these writers who, who were actually, um, in many cases, the priest of a, of a small town or a rural church at a time when all the Catholics in their community were fighting for freedom or resistance the U.S. was funding the central government to go assassinate people right. who were part of their church. So the writings that they write, I mean, the, the, if you're a priest in the tradition of liberation theology, or anyone in the tradition of liberation theology, you recognize um, the, the person of Jesus as, as uh, basically bearing all of the mess of our society. <laughs> but also you recognize that we as believers are taking a crucified body off the cross like taking that taking that body down um is is an act of recognizing our own accountability um Mm -hmm. or complicity in the way that we're oppressing our neighbors we're oppressing the poor so in the tradition james cone is a famous Mm -hmm. Mm african-american liberation theologian and you know his his book god of the oppressed talks about how jesus is black talk about a white church but you can't talk about a white jesus there there is no hasn't stopped him <laughs> there is no historical basis right. yeah. for that right. Yeah. you know to be honest if you know if jesus is around today black trans woman li- living at freedom square mm-hmm. you know with mm-hmm. it in in north lawndale with us in a tent that's where my experience of faith is mm-hmm. on the margins that that then that, that historical Jesus that you just spoke about, was that a shock for you? Did you have to like break something to get to that place? Did you kind of already have the like, oh, hair of wool, you know, Middle East kind of understanding? Uh, or was there like a moment of like, oh, I need to rethink and re-understand how I know my deity? Yeah, I'll tell you, there's there's not one like moment in time. It's not, it wouldn't be like fair to like, oh, here's my epiphany. Yeah. Uh, there've been a lot of, moments that have shaken me up in terms of that awareness. Um, and one of the most relevant, I mean, for the past just about eight years now, I've been, I've been going, my church community is St. Agatha's in mm-hmm. North Lawndale. Mm-hmm. And, you know, St. Agatha's is a special, special community for me. But eight years going to church in North Lawndale and the people in that church who, you know, who really mentor me and who mm-hmm. really form my interpretation of scripture these days are folks whose reality isn't a North Lawndale reality, mm-hmm. um, you know, and what I mean by that is that when you hear Scripture and you walk out the door into North Lawndale, Scripture sounds a little bit different than it did at my, you know, suburban church in suburban Cincinnati. You walk out into the community and 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 you recognize that it's not abstract really anymore. Hmm. During the season of Easter, Palm Sunday, you know, we're, we're reading about even straight out of the gospel, right? Like, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Right? Mm-hmm. One of the last things Jesus says on the cross. Mm-hmm. You walk out into the community of North Lawndale, you see 2,500 vacant lots. Mm-hmm. You see ways in which, like there's million-dollar blocks in Lawndale, right? The, the language state of organized of, abandonment. The state, the yeah. state mm-hmm. of Illinois spends over a million dollars a year, like per block in parts of North Lawndale, on the incarceration of people who should be living on that block, right? Mm-hmm. You could probably buy half the buildings on the block for a million dollars, you know, right? So it's, it's disinvestment, structural violence and disinvestment mm-hmm. to the point that you know, we're making it impossible mm-hmm. for, for people's lives to basically be full, you know, mm-hmm. to be lives of dignity. You know, out of the working age men in, in North Lawndale, 70% of us, you know, I've lived in North Lawndale for the past seven years, but the 70% mm-hmm. of, of working age men in North Lawndale either are currently incarcerated or have records. Mm-hmm. Right? And that, that's the same as saying 70% of families in North Lawndale have been separated by the state. Mm-hmm. 
all sorts of Christians want to talk about family values. There is no value in separating 70% of the family. We can maybe even theorize higher than that, right? Because 70% of the men might represent a connection to 100% of the family. Right. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. Uh, yeah, that's you know, absolutely it's, true. Uh, it, it, it's almost a totality. Uh, yeah, it's, it's unfair. So I'm hearing it was finding the, the faith community where you were in practice. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I imagine you kind of had like general good guy sensibilities. Sure. But, well, but, I mean, look, but, look but, at that smile. But, you know, but like where we are, you know, talking about structures, yeah. naming your own position yeah. in a, a, a space of white supremacy, that takes like work. And I've always been curious because it's it's weird having this because like, uh, you, you know, y'all too, right? Like I, I, mm. bigging up white masculinity is is like precarious, but it also needs to be named when there are a few examples. So like y'all too and Matt are probably like my go-tos, but you probably were like the first kind of like mm. real embodied example of what we say the transformation of white masculinity could look like, right? And so I'm trying to understand like where were the intentional or like cognizant conscious moments that got there and like what was difficult about it. So asking those questions are really hard. Or I'm, I'm figuring out, trying to figure out how to place it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. that's, I'm just gathering that story. So I'm hearing the eight year ago, Mark, when yeah. St. Agatha was like really significant for that. For, for sure. That in terms of making religion work, mm-hmm. you know, with um, anti-oppression. Right. It, yeah. It, <laughs> religion, religion isn't, by its very nature, anti-oppressive because of the way that, I mean, Jesus was killed by religious elites, Mm -hmm. you know, and the state. Let me ask a follow-up. So I've got to a reading where religion is not only not anti-oppressive, but at least in anti-blackness and the the institution of white supremacy, it's it's not even just like an accomplice. I've kind of read it as a a creator or or yeah. a, a, a a foster parent at minimum a co-creator <laughs> you know yeah, no um, yeah. look i mean we're talking well, about mean, you i'm sorry i'm sorry i mean colonial, <laughs> yeah, yeah. colonial history big. right yeah. so so like look at the, the way the world is today like yeah there's a reason why people speak portuguese in angola mm-hmm. right the reason why we're speaking french in niger mm-hmm. you know it's, you know the reason why we're speaking spanish in latin america so and english here in chicago um and those reasons um have a lot to do with oppression yeah. and most of the people sailing in those boats were christians you know yeah. that is that is something that we as a church have to grapple with it's something that we as individuals have to grapple with there's no way around that how do you grapple with it <laughs> yeah right so and i'm not saying solve it but yeah, what does the wrestling look yeah. like because i hear That's you have a you have a personal piece yeah. Or project a personal piece that is rare among anyone, and you are walking through serious contradiction. Yeah. So how do you how do you make sense of this for yourself? Yeah, I mean, one day at a time is is the only answer <laughs> to that. But um, it doesn't make sense. What 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 I can do? <laughs> That's great. What what I can do yeah. is I can as I can say that like there's paradox that I live in when I do work in Africa as an electrical engineer, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a paradox, which is on, on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm reallocating my engineering skills or my privilege, in other words, because you don't get engineering skills without privilege, <laughs> um, you know, to where it's most needed. Anytime you have an allocation of goods and services, the just allocation is you give where it's needed most, mm-hmm. right? Same with the bedrooms in my house. Right. You know, give it to the people who need it most within certain boundaries that, right. that allow for me not to have like right. for me to have a manageable life, mm-hmm. right? So, so reallocating engineering skills, privilege to where it's most needed. At the same time, engaging in relationship, right? Engaging in solidarity in spite of that same privilege. Can you speak more? What do you mean by in spite? 
So the same reason that, like, I have an engineering degree, mm -hmm. which I'm calling privilege. There's other words for that, but mm -hmm. privilege is what got me the engineering degree. Also, privilege is my biggest obstacle to having some kind of genuine relationship with the folks in the Congo that I'm going to be mm -hmm. working with next week, right? If I come in with that chip on my shoulder, if I come in with that, you know, arrogant perspective, if I, to use religious terms, if I come in trying to convert folks, mm -hmm. you know, that's like, I guess, you know, oppression by, by definition, mm. this kind of conversion mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not to say that the outcome of this interaction that, you know, conversion is impossible. I'm open to conversion to understand, you know, what's the culture in DRC? How, how are we going to work together? How are we going to become a team? How are we going to get this done? And also folks will at some point learn a little bit of engineering along the way. Mm -hmm. And and so... And also might get to know you. Yeah, no, totally. It's it's not just a skill share. Like you were a person there too, I'm imagining, and there's some of that too. No, it, and it's amazing. The people over the years, it, it's really... It's really an interesting time to be alive because, um, you know, if I post a picture yesterday of me marching in the in the Trump protest, you know, down State Street, you know, and I've got, you know, Facebook friends from, you know, <laughs> Cameroon, Congo, Guatemala, you know, who are like reacting. It's a really surreal huh. moment to see the world react mm. to the Trump protest. Um, mm. And it's really a gift and a blessing to be able to interact with that. <laughs> um, but... It's not something I'm entitled to. It's not something that it just isn't it interesting when yeah. when like the world connects in that way. Like I was working in Haiti when Trump made the the comment <laughs> the about shit, the, the shit whole country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Trump made that comment at the time. I was living and working in Haiti, <laughs> and and in Haiti, my cell phone plan had a plan where it, it texts everybody news updates. Mm. So everybody's phone in the office vibrates at the same time. <laughs> we all look at our phone, and it's in French. It's like trop de mal, and it's like. <laughs> you know, like, well, and, guys, I'll see you later. Uh, yeah, <laughs> take right. <laughs> right. And I, I was just like, "What?" So, you what know, did you do? Yeah. So we had to have a little conversation <laughs> about politics in America. No, um, you know, and there were there were folks there were folks in the office that agreed with him. Really? There. I mean, there's there's kind of a learned helplessness, and there's a there's a a self-esteem that that comes up with like growing up in a in a place where mm -hmm, you're told mm -hmm. that what well, you on days when you're not being told that by Donald Trump you're being told that by a lot of other factors mm -hmm. of your life but also there's folks who obviously obviously the 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 vast majority of people were, yeah. were just furious like why does this make any sense for anybody to be taking a shot like that at this country um which is of course my opinion too mm -hmm. right so <laughs> the next week, I went on uh, live stream to the breathing room. Mm -hmm. um, you know, let us From breathe. Haiti, yeah. Let us breathe. Collective was hosting <laughs> their their monthly performance series, the breathing room, and I was invited um, mm -hmm. to to go on a on a video chat and actually turned over the mic and the camera to my colleagues and let them explain in their own words how they felt about it yeah. um, in Haitian Creole. And that was really significant, you know, because yeah. we, we have global ambitions there without really like global capacity. And so to have yeah. have Haiti stream into the event and and, you know, we came up with the concept in some ways in re response to our conversation with like that political moment or, yeah. or that jargon. So, yeah, once again, thank you. And I think that's a good segue to kind of pivot. Pivot. I think that's a really good um, kind of transition to kind of come back into our relationship, yeah. uh, which I think grounds a lot of kind of your narrative and, and how you move in the world and, and mine as well. Uh, and, and I want to 
you know, I think I've asked before, but want to get some of the seeds of how we got to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, so I met you the last time, my, my, for folks who don't know, my dad's entertainer. He hosts the Urban yep. League Gala. Uh, so, like, the last time I put on a suit, kind of like in life, yeah. was, to, <laughs> was to show up, you know, to go with my dad. and like You go got in right Urban on League time. Was, <laughs> and at the table, that, that I'm sitting, I think I might have had, like, my grandfather or something with me. Uh, you know, I was just like, ah, oh, small talk. Oh, I hate this place. I hate the small. I hate the, the bow ties. I hate the black. You know, I was... I'm, Two months and probably the Letters Breathe collective existence, maybe even six weeks, maybe like four weeks. I can't like place it on them, but it's like fall of 2014 still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, at this point, we, we, are, we are an organization of air quote Ferguson protesters, right? Like literal relationship to Ferguson protests, but then also what Ferguson protests, this new praxis of how to do direct action, of how to activate open space. Uh, and that's kind of the limit. Uh, of what we were at that point. And we started talking and you were connected. Oh, I'm bogus for forgetting his name. Um, he was being, yes. He was being honored. Clyde Ross was being honored uh, at the Urban League Gala for his housing work yeah. uh, for folks who that might ring a bell. The um, case for reparations written by ta Coates. He is the central figure or character in that mm. narrative huh. um and that was your big homie or that was like a mentor to yeah you. That, that was why you were there uh which like made us have a little bit more conversation my memory is shot of, of right. too much stuff happened yeah. uh but within a few weeks or months uh we were doing a trip or doing tours with with lost voices in ferguson and were invited to a dinner at emmaus house yeah which really started uh a significant important relationship um, that probably, you know, coming out of Ferguson protesters to an organization that organizes yeah. more than that, uh, our relationship with the Emmaus House was fundamental and, and literally would not have been possible uh, to do the activation and stuff that we did in North Lawndale, which was our original political home without right. that relationship. So I just want to go back to your memory of that, like us meeting yeah. in that time and kind of like what was stewing in you to be so prepared to respond and what was your first impression of damon oh my gosh (laughs) so so yeah though this is this is just a just a remarkable story this is the part that the 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 five years ago frank wouldn't just (laughs) never have been able to connect these dots Right. right and so much of what you asked about you know what what makes me have the relation to white malehood that i have is is actually intertwined with my relationship to you and let us breathe Mm. like there's not you can't unscramble that egg, right? Mm-hmm. We're a sum of our relationships and experiences, mm-hmm. right? So, so my my memory of meeting Damon was, you know, I'm I'm going to this event to honor my landlord at the time, you know, mm-hmm. Clyde Ross. So no he one, owns. Yeah, the Emmaus I House. was no. Uh, the, so in the beginning, Emmaus House was was five of us who barely knew each other, and we weren't ready to buy a house. Uh. So we had a we had a choice. Be- so this didn't exist before uh, y'all as a group. There right. was no Emmaus House. No. Oh, Same I just me. assumed it had been there for no. so the, fifty years. The, yeah, Emmaus House started in July of 2012. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and so it, we had a couple different options for where to live, but the option that ca- that really stood out was that Mr. Ross, you know, Clyde Ross, um, this, in my opinion, legendary figure mm-hmm. in the civil rights movement in Chicago, mm-hmm. had. Basically, I think he had a nephew or something who was renting the the upstairs flat of his of his two flat. You know, cops raided the place, knocked down the door, broke mm. a bunch of stuff, and made some arrests. And so he had an open unit, um, <laughs> and uh, and he offered it to to us. It, you know, I mean, for a fair market rent and everything. Mm. But but so there's there's a beautiful paradox there, right? I, I had been at that time looking for for six months 
open to living in Lawndale, aware of the history of Lawndale, but not really knowing where to plug in, mm-hmm. going to this church in Lawndale, this Catholic church, meeting a bunch of wonderful people who were older than my parents, you know, mm-hmm. many of them, but but wonderful people who have this longevity in the community and, and not not knowing how to how to make a move into North Lawndale with integrity, you know. Mm-hmm. Because if we want to, you know, the the desegregation of Chicago, you know, is is is, is, a, is a big is a big concept, <laughs> right? But but proximity to the struggle is a way of engaging in the struggle, mm-hmm. right? Hmm. That's one of the main stories of the Catholic worker is engaging in these communities um, and providing a safe haven within, you know, wh- whatever whatever the situation is and the social hmm. reality. And I, I'm not qualified to speak on the social reality of, you know, a lifelong resident of Lawndale, but I have a better idea living in Lawndale than I did when I lived in Old Town. Mm-hmm. So, right. and, and, and <laughs> you know, I've been stopped and frisked by CPD on the street. You know, that's another story. But but the point is, when I met Damon... <laughs> I'd like to know uh, that yeah, story. Later, well, let's I'm put gonna, a pin in that. But that, gonna, we'll, that kind of made me chuckle. That, that, could be, that could be in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, I don't know. I'll go back this to... Is it. Like, it's like when my dad got bust in St. Louis to the white school. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Anyway, but, but go ahead. So, so I met Damon at this, at this event, right? Mr. Ross is being on. Right. Mr. Russ, at, at this point, you know, he invited two of the Mayus House, myself and Lydia. Shout out to Lydia. Yeah, well, Lydia I Wong. Love uh, Lydia. <laughs> yeah, one of the co-founders of Emmaus House and definitely family. Um, so Lydia and I are there with Jack McNamara, who's a contemporary. You know, he's like a organizer from the 60s um, who were closely with Mr. Ross and then his one of his sons. The people who he asked to be mm. there as he receives the Lifetime Achievement Award <laughs> from the Chicago Urban League. And so I was like, just so incredibly impressed yeah. to be on that list, yeah. you know, somehow. And so I show up in a suit, you know, and, <laughs> and end up sitting next to Damon. And, and I, you know, introduce myself or whatever. He goes, hey, I'm Damon Williams. I'm like, oh, cool, you're the MC. <laughs> he goes, that's nah, my dad. <laughs> um, and, and then we started talking because we both know Xavier Ramey. Right, right, right. Um, and I knew Xavier was going back and forth to Ferguson mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. you know I I had just heard bits and pieces. I also had gone I was in Ferguson a few weeks before that mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, yeah, what was what was your experience mm-hmm. in Ferguson mm-hmm. here, you know, this is what my was right, like." Right, right, right. I guess my first impression of Damon was, you know, wow, like I I really want to, you know, keep talking to this guy. I think, you know, his perspectives on this would be hugely valuable for me and 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 I love to learn more about what's going on. Well, next time I saw Damon was at the event called End of Silence. Ah. Okay. Right. So Let Us Breathe did a, um, like a, you know, spoken word event that culminated in, you know, a street protest where we took over Belmont and Halstead or some yeah, intersection yeah, up yeah. on the north side. Right. And um, I just remember at the end of the slam poetry night, I'm like getting my coat on ready to go home. And I hear Christiana yell out, I need a confident white man. And I was like, oh God. You know? And then, and then am, I, it, am I confident? I know I got two and, or three. And, and then, and, and before I could even ask myself that question, Xavier Ramey like rips me out of the crowd and assigns me the task of rolling her speaker yeah, on yep. a dolly mm-hmm, down mm-hmm. Belmont Street. That's very funny because that's how we became that's how we close be- with became me. from like associates to like, oh, we're, we could do some I dolly the, rolling. The biggest difference, I wasn't that confident. <laughs> I was just real. I, she was doing all the talking. I'll just say yeah. that. So yeah, there, there we are, like rolling down the street. Then my, my you next. Had more white friends if you just rolled the dolly more. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> anyway, yeah. No, there's so many. There's so many funny stories about my early days with um with Let Us Breathe. Uh-huh. You know, I, you may even I don't know edit some of these out. But no, the, no. the next time I was involved with Let Us Breathe was I got you know somebody I think 
maybe Xavier texted me. Somebody texted me and said you guys were meeting at, at University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's just some random building. I, I don't know what the building was. I'd, I'd never been on campus at University yeah. of Chicago at that point. So I just find my way down into the basement where you guys are meeting. <clears throat> and I walked into the meeting. I must have been like 20 minutes late mm-hmm. by the time I found it. And um, I, I opened the door. Well, you were late to a Let Us Breathe meeting? <laughs> you must have been really late. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> we might have started, the rolling start might have, might have developed. We might have been more punctual at that time. <laughs> so, I, so I open the door, I walk into the room. The first thing I hear is, so should it be a black-only space? <laughs> and, they're, and they're talking about planning black brunch, right? right. And so somebody says so it. Funny. I don't know if it was Christiana or Jenna. <laughs> somebody says it, looks up, and there I am. And like, I'm like, do I sit down? <laughs> so, so then I sit down, and, and whoever was talking, it was not like a moment where anybody wanted to like give me a chance to introduce myself. That was not what was happening at that time. And so the... <laughs> And somehow the conversation was like directed right at me within my first five minutes in the room was like, how would you feel if Black Brunch was a black only space? And I'm like, you guys, you go right ahead. You know, should I leave? Like, like that was like the initial like, holy cow. It's funny, funny, but I also want to talk about this. Yeah. You know, obviously we are different people with very different experiences in this, but I, I am curious for you. There's the humor in it. And then there's the fact that over time you built very meaningful relationships with some of these people. Right. Um, and then there's the like abstraction of like you should be uncomfortable in the room. Yeah. And that is a useful thing. Sometimes I think that that uh, can be a tricky balance. There are times tactically where I think the idea of like not taking up space is really useful. Yeah. And then there are ways that I don't know how to say this without it sounding dismissive, but the difference between like tactical analyses of power and community building and that community building means that actually there's space in the room what you trying to say daniel (laughs) (laughs) i think you know what i mean no (laughs) and just as whether it's i'm not saying it's right or wrong i think for the most part it's right and it i think it ends up actually being way more useful but i'm curious for you as a person when things like this become pattern or become the way things are done how you make sense of the like continual well i'm not going to do anything and the, cuz there's a difference between not taking up space and like not feeling like you have room to be part of it if it if it isn't explicitly defined as not for you no that that's right and it and it took me i would say it took me a long time be, between this this is almost an allegory, right? It's mm-hmm. al- we're almost we're almost like a parable of yeah, yeah, like yeah. what it's like to walk into that space. Yeah. Oh, we spit parables here. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so it it took a while and months um, for for me to feel like I was bringing my whole self into a space mm-hmm. that was let us breathe space. But that's not unusual. It's not unique to me not feeling like I'm bringing my whole self into a space because there's plenty of other people in our society who struggle, right. who, who, yeah, where, yeah, where yeah. the space isn't set up for them to bring them their whole selves right, either. Right, right. And in fact, it's actually quite helpful, yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for me as, you know, white cishet male, like that I'm in this space and, and actually like checking myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it and it it's not something that I get right every time, you know. It's not something I get right most of the time. The the other funny anecdote from that was that after we had this meeting about black brunch and we kind of had a plan for it, and um, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was a black only. The fact that they asked me that question for me indicated that it was black only space, and so I was I I brought coffee and donuts to mm-hmm. black brunch, but mm-hmm. didn't participate. Mm-hmm. But 
after that meeting, I went home and I said, oh, I know. They're going to do this Black Brunch thing on Martin Luther King Day. They're going to walk through Wicker Park, hit up a bunch of brunch spots, and read off the names of people who've been killed by police. Here's how I can be helpful. I'll make a Google Doc with all the brunch spots on, on <laughs> Milwaukee between, you know, Division and North Ave, which I did. Um, and, like, the next day, I forward it to... Uh, yeah, everybody. Probably Christiana. <laughs> everybody whose email address I had from that meeting, and I'll be, I'll be honest. This is kind of funny yeah, yeah, for me, yeah. but the looking back on it, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I hope, I hope I get the phone numbers right. I hope I don't have the addresses <laughs> wrong. You know, should I add a Google Map? You know, like, and I'm like going like way overthinking uh-huh. this, right? <laughs> so I hit send, and then I go like make myself a sandwich or something, eat dinner, whatever, and then um, I come back to my computer like an hour later, and there's an email from Christiana. <laughs> She's like, Frank, did, did you know that the, the Black Brunch document is read-only? I was like mortified, of course. But here it is. Here it is. The, the, the white dude wants to help plan the black protest with a read-only document. You know, I'm like dictating to you what your, pro, you know. And it was just, it just needed to click a yeah, button yeah, and like yeah, yeah. share it with you guys. But like, but that's, um, I've used that often in organizing other people who identify as white, you know, mm. to be part of racial justice struggles is how many times do we make our resistance read only? You know, how, do, mm. how many times do we do we set the agenda? We like we need to influence these people. These are our targets. You know, this is a political, you know, like so as long as you want to show up, this is what we'll be doing mm-hmm. kind of an attitude. Mm-hmm. And so here I, the irony, of course, of being the, the, the newest person, the person with the least belonging or reason to be there putting out read-only Google Docs, <laughs> you know, it's just like a little microcosm for so much of, of what allyship ends up being. Mm. That's funny. It is funny. Because that didn't even resonate for me at the time because I didn't read the, 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 the Google Docs and that just missed me. Like, oh, wow, that's really, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yours was, didn't even read. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I'm glad we can laugh about yeah, it now. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, all. No, no, yeah. I mean, so did it, you feel like, yeah. did you feel panicked? I did. Oh, I was so panicked. Yeah, wow. yeah. I even went to Lydia. I was like, Lydia, Lydia, look what I just did. So what's that panic? Because I, I understand that. But I, and the reason why I'm staying on this is because it's not a conversation we usually have up there, but I think there are people listening who this is a useful conversation yeah. for. No, yeah, and I think... I think why people listen to podcasts. <laughs> for sure. For, for sure. Hold it down out there. We I, see you out there. I, I recommend this podcast to anyone who asks me about a Chicago oh, podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I think the first thing that I, that I tell myself you know, is that when I walked into that room while you guys were discussing black only, black brunch, I think it was apparent to everybody in the room that I didn't have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. And and it it was okay with everyone in the room or else I would have just left, you mm-hmm. know. Um, you know, when, when people show up, you know, to organizing spaces, whether it's racial justice, immigration, any space, I mean, we, we come as we are, right? Like we mm-hmm. have we have the tools we have. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to stay that way. You know, of course, there's there's a lot of growth and work that's necessary to engage responsibly. I was living at Mr. Ross's house. We'd spoken with Damon, mm-hmm. spoken with Xavier. I felt relatively, I, I wasn't, I don't think, just intruder, intruding, right? right? Yeah. So, so like, But you were a stranger. I don't, yeah. like, that wasn't my space, though. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and I knew that coming in. And so with that comes, you know, unfamiliar reactions, you know, perhaps. Space is not set up for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the one speaking first. Many Let Us Breathe meetings, I, you know, I remember I'm a very extroverted person, and I, I always have an opinion on stuff. You, I don't have a poker face. You, you know what I'm going to say before <laughs> I say it. Um, but, yeah, like sitting in a meeting for 45 minutes and not saying something was a brand new experience for me mm-hmm. in Let Us Breathe. And, and, me too, yeah. And I felt like I was totally thrilled to be there and excited to be to be part of the meeting but usually i express my excitement by talking <laughs> mm-hmm. and and the 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 space in those meetings was was different damon what from your 
having also been in those meetings, <laughs> what's that experience like on your end? Um, and how much have you been thinking about it? What do you mean, my experience? My experience of like observing watching, or watching yeah. whiteness in the room? Yeah, and not the like typical time mm -hmm. where the person says the thing that's like, "Of course you said that." Yeah, the time yeah. where they didn't. How does that still play out? Um, well, for me, it, it it always resonates because this iteration of black liberation work that I'm connected to operates pretty intentionally under a black queer feminist lens. So I, I understand um, what it means to be in a room that traditionally you would be used to taking up space or talking in the first five minutes or just being comfortable being unaware of your impact uh, and having to like readdress that. So there, there's a weird like understanding that I think I have because hmm. I am wrestling with those same things on a different intersection or on a different axis. Therefore, I can recognize when it's not being done well pretty easily. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's because of the level of, of radicality or disorganization or youthfulness <laughs> or whatever, we really don't attract too many folks who aren't going to ask those questions or at least, at least that, that like you might not have had theory or could have written an essay about it, but at least embodied physically when you open the door, there was an awareness that you spoke to that I, I don't even remember like the, the kind of the, the, the comedic timing of all that moment. Yeah. Uh, I remember that room. I remember making that plan. I remember you being there. I don't remember a lot of those beats. My memory of the space is there's some awkwardness, right? Like the, the thing about <laughs> whiteness in the room that probably hits my radar the most that we don't talk about is like my perception of corniness. Mm. <laughs> and so that's more like, what I'm more actively looking white for. White corny or you being corny? No, white corny. White corny. White corny. Because let's, like, let's define this for because because like white bullshit, right? Like the thing we saw <laughs> earlier today. Like that's a no go, right? So like I don't even like have to be actively looking for yeah. that. Like the room is gonna kind of correct Filter. for that or yeah. respond to that collectively, even just with how we're breathing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more of the like, here's my little anecdote. Here's my little interest. Here are my like shoes that fit all of my toes individually. And like, I'm just very exuberant about the world <laughs> in like a way that like in an ideal world, everybody should have that exuberance, right. but it is only allotted to a certain positionality that when uh -huh. it comes out, it's two things. It's like white boy excitement and white woman crying. <laughs> right, like, that's both pretty exuberant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like ah, that's the thing. So, so that's usually more what I'm like looking for, and it's it's kind of more of like a it's 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 lighter for me. I don't know. That wasn't like a very intelligible answer, but that's that, fine. That's, that's my first. We thing. also there are other things to talk about, but I, I want to get past like the the, the first yeah. beat. But is there like, anything that you want to yeah, add yeah, to yeah. that conversation? Just no, no. I, I would say that <laughs> I, I I've I've always just universally gratitude, gratitude, gratitude for let us breathe in the space that let us breathe is created. Of course, black queer feminist lens, of course, black liberation, you know, but um, it's the most tangible space that I've been in of mutual liberation, right? There's, mm. there's a part of me that I was able to bring into that space, not maybe the first meeting, not maybe the, the fifth meeting, not maybe the, but at some point, you know. At I, some point, the meetings were in your house, though. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, I mean, yes, I'd love to talk about that. But you thing, felt eventually but. like there were, you could, you, you didn't just have to, it, it wasn't a usurping for you to bring your full self into the room. No, and, and that's, I don't think that a lot of, would-be, aspiring, wannabe, whatever, allies have had that experience yet. And, mm -hmm. and that's the experience I'd want to share is that in some space, whether it's the community that I live in or the community that I organize in, or the like we have to welcome one another enough to be open to who they are. Mm -hmm. And Let Us Breathe certainly has like, exemplified that for me, and it's made me better at doing that 
in Emmaus mm-hmm. house. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in kind of going through, we don't have to go because there's too many to like go through all of the details yeah. for the sake of like your time and people's listening's time. But I'm really intrigued by how you told that story of like read only. Yeah. Of how you used our mutual experiences as a teaching tool in other spaces. Yeah. Uh, that's really significant to, to hear. So I, I would love to know like, as it went from like this fumbling introduction that was kind of like not consequential for at least my memory. I realize now you telling it like how real that must've been for you. Um, But then it it got comfortable and it built towards partnership. And maybe if it it felt like uncomfortable, I always had at least personally a really deep appreciation. I think we, you know, we connected well pretty much early on. Mm -hmm. Once it got to that level of like you're moving in comfort or, there is now a partnership or you are a part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not really allyship anymore. It's really more camaraderie and commonality. Yeah. What are the lessons that you've taken from that? So we can get to stories from that, but like yeah. as you're teaching or as you're, you know, well, reflecting. I think we didn't get comfortable until we got useful. Right. Mm, and so, yeah. and so just showing up <laughs> isn't why the, re- the reason Damon and I have a good relationship with each other is not because I just kept yeah, coming to his lo- meetings. A lot of people come. And like <laughs> sitting quietly in the background, you know, although that was part of the story, like we needed to actually come up with some mutual aid and, and to start building building something worth doing together, right? And and so <laughs> it, at times when, um, you know, when Let Us Breathe, even even if I had could perceive like a small need or a way of helping mm-hmm. out, you know, you guys need a meeting space, you know? And so for a while, meetings were happening in our living room at Emmaus House, you know? You needed storage space. So stuff was being stored in my <laughs> garage. Storage space was needed. <laughs> um, during Freedom Square, like, Nobody had a place to take a shower, go to the bathroom, take a nap. Yeah. Y'all got keys to my house, you know, like the the ways in which this relationship got real was because we were like really open to it Mm -hmm. and not just sitting quietly in meetings. And that happened pretty quick. We literally like drove the supplies while y'all were up there. I remember pulling out of the driveway behind Amaya's house with all the cars with supplies that became Freedom Square. Yeah. And at least initially, like... I remember that turning out of that alley specifically because of the adrenaline. You know, like when something's adrenalized, yeah. it like imprints in your memory more. You're deploying. I have yeah, the same yeah, memories. Yeah. It's like yeah. a mission. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause we all thought when we when we set up the tents for Freedom Square that we were, about we were to go gonna to jail. get <laughs> yeah, ripped out and arrested. Like we we all thought that. Yeah. Funny side note about that trip out of the the alley. So I was borrowing the car. This is back before I had my uh my young 2002 Subaru. <laughs> I had a really nice hustle where I would uh Hustles makes it sound bad. I did. I provided a service <laughs> where when someone would go out of town, I would drive them to the airport, keep their car while they're gone, and then pick them up so that I had access to a car. And often get them an oil change, which when ne- when needed, <laughs> when needed. That's a good perk. Uh, I had a. I managed to have car access for like eight months of 2016 only <laughs> off of this. It wow. was fantastic. Um, and then people stopped touring as much and things. I had to get a car, but so I was borrowing a car actually from someone who lived in a different city who we went to college with who I was not particularly close to. And uh, the story doesn't cast me in a great light, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> so I was borrowing her Prius. And one of the ways that we tried to make the the tents that went up in Freedom Square more difficult to move was we, we were like, what can we put that's heavy inside the tents? Perfect. We'll get these bags of powder cement. So me and Lydia went to Home Depot and we got like 400 pounds of powder <laughs> cement. And we put them like the first half into the back of this Prius and it literally was like dragging on the <laughs> ground. We're like, all right, we're going to have to do a few trips. So we unloaded. And then when we were coming out of the alley to go set up. There was like a big boulder in the mm-hmm. corner of the alley. And I put a real nice dent in the side of uh, this person's car that I offered to pay for. And she was like, great, let's talk about it. 
And then she never followed up, and now it's been five years. <laughs> <laughs> Hope she's not listening to this podcast. Or now she has receipts uh, to, to follow shit. up with. <laughs> <laughs> What's the statute of limitations on uh, on liberation work? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, no, but that, that anecdote actually gets into a thread I wanted to get to. Because you said something, uh, talking about like offering the beds, and like we have to meet needs, mm-hmm. but they're also, to be healthy, there needs to be bounds or boundaries. Right. Um, and I think Freedom Square, as an example... Uh, but but I think you know our, our, something I was always nervous about or aware of with like the Ari Mayer's house surge relationships of like do we go beyond bounds and then also I think Freedom Square well no I know Freedom Square for me learned I may not know what my boundaries are but now I know that I need to have them <laughs> uh, and now the struggle is every time I try to set them up it does not fit with like the liberatory way I want to practice in the world and the things that I just feel responsible to respond to yeah uh and so you know i was expecting to like get more like the details of you you know you have the document with like the nitty-gritty of freedom square but we don't really have to get into the day-to-day but that idea of showing up being useful but we tested all of our capacities and all of our limits because for people who like are aware but don't know what you said was really important is that we did not expect it to be much more than 24 to 48 hours and then the entry point worked so magically or so beautifully that we had something to stand on that lasted us for weeks. But we did not have the plan of something to last for weeks because we thought there's no way in hell we could right. be a live-in protest across from a torture facility. Right. And that is allowed on land that we don't, air quote, own. National, international yeah, news. Yeah, yeah, like, all none of that, that was in the, was was in the, in the plan. And yeah. so uh, for you, you know, you can get into some of your perspective or, you know, your takeaways from Freedom Square. But I, I want to focus a little bit on, like, showing up and offering but balancing that about learning bounds because what made me think about it is a lot of cars got destroyed yeah. or fucked up or a lot of the transmission got, got ran yeah. over or right, stolen like, or stole yeah. yeah so so you know there was loss um <laughs> fortunately it was mostly material um but there was loss and, <laughs> and there, mostly it, yours <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I, i'm i'm now like just talking instead of asking the question i think you get like kind yeah. of the gumball I'm yeah i mean we could almost do a whole just that multiple episodes on freedom square <laughs> and the oral history of freedom square which i think would be awesome someday but for those um, who are curious and haven't heard it episode 53 of ergo is in some ways that but from within the moment so we recorded live there and then i interviewed three or four other people there so if you want to get a sense for what kind of conversations were happening there and just what it sounded like go back and listen to episode 53 difficult truth i still haven't been able to listen to that yet it's a beautiful one i, I can't wait so, <laughs> so so pressures of oral history aside right on what's your experience right on no i mean so freedom square was a, you know an occupation and it was all consuming i mean it was for those of us who you know who felt some accountability to the space it was it was the first thing we thought about you know every day and and how we had to cover staffing i mean there was you know even overnight like somebody was always awake. I mean, we, we needed kind of this mutual aid or this kind of self-preservation of like, you know, if you really think that, that the cops are going to tear stuff down and, and arrest you, you should be watching for that. So, um, you know, <laughs> we would sleep in shifts. You know, we would sleep, you know, 10 to 2, and then somebody would wake up, and then 2 to 6, and somebody would wake up, and 6 to 10 every night. And I was working, you know, 9 to 5 during that time. Um, and co- coordinating. <laughs> so we just named all the hours of the day. <laughs> coordinating, yeah, co- exactly. <laughs> right, and uh, and coordinating, yeah, coordinating the the way that I could be in the space and and have some boundaries, but the also like I would say, I, I one of my boundaries was I'm going to take Sunday mornings off. I'm going to go to church. I'm mm-hmm. going to do like my normal thing. One morning, Sunday morning, I'm at home. 
you know, I just slept in a tent at Freedom Square. I go home to take a quick shower before church. And um, I open up the door from the shower, you know, and there's a woman standing outside my my shower door inside of my house. Like, in the bathroom? In in my house, in the hallway of my house. Okay. And they're like, hi, I'm Rebecca. I got the key from, uh, you know, from Let Us Breathe. And I'm wondering where should I put the donations of hamburger buns and chicken? And I'm like, right. Rebecca, let me get some clothes on. We'll talk, we'll talk about it in a second. Like, you know, like just yes. in your own home. Turns right. out your boundary is the shower curtain. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> That's boundary. all you got. Exactly. The shower curtain was my boundary. <laughs> No, it's, I mean, pr- it's translucent. <laughs> um, That's yeah. a flimsy boundary. <laughs> Good thing this is radio. Um, the uh, yeah, so so yeah, no, I mean, we bought an extra freezer during that time so that we could keep people donated chicken from hamburgers, hot dogs from spoiling. You know, that, that's where it was all happening. Um, so my reflections were, you know, in addition to the like the liminal space of Freedom Square not really being a home, but but in some ways being much more than a home. Then also the the space that I call home is is not so much a home. You mm-hmm. know, it's a it's a very much a communal space. It's it's kind of at the service of this movement that I'm not in control of. You know, certainly I'm I have a seat at that table, mm-hmm. but I'm not controlling this in any way. So the, the whole thing was evolving, right? Nothing was nothing was figured out, and you kind of we make the path by walking it. You know, the whole time for 47 days and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'm hearing so much throughout this is the surrendering of control. That's a hard thing to do for anyone. You're also an engineer (laughs) and a system builder. And even just in some of the conversation around faith, there's a surrendering of control there too. How do you think about control, balance, those different pieces of your brain? Do they feel like different processes? Or do you feel like the way you approach building Freedom Square is how you approach building in the Congo, is how you approach building your personal self? Yeah, so... I'll take this opportunity to use I'm going on Friday to Democratic Republic of Congo where my client is um, is a small Congolese startup that's building a two megawatt solar powered microgrid for the town of Goma. You know, so so this is this is about a four point two million dollar project, you know, that I'm managing. We're gonna build like four thousand solar panels. Um, they're they're pouring the foundations right now. Um, the you know, all the inverter, one point one megawatts of in, of inverters. Tesla batteries, the first Tesla batteries ever in Democratic Republic of Congo. All mm. this all this stuff is going into this project. Wow. And Goma is a town of two million people. It's about the size of Chicago. But unlike Chicago, Goma's been a continuous civil war for the past 30 years, and it's currently the largest Ebola outbreak in the world, mm. um, is just outside the city. Yeah. So so in that context, I'm constantly put into situations where I'm out of control. Like, there's not a cure for Ebola, you know, right? Like, I'm going to be... <laughs> yeah, you got to surrender a certain amount of control. Like, it. Yeah. you know, like, just to kind of be involved in that. And I'm not saying that in a self-congratulatory way. It's just it's just the facts of, facts of life are, if I wait until I'm in control of stuff before doing it, you know, life shrinks or expands in proportion to your courage at some point. And mm. with a little bit of humility and a little bit of courage, you know, we, c- we can take the first step and then we can take the next step. It, you know, in Freedom Square you know, I felt that it was very much right. I felt I was definitely on the right side of history, whatever that means, mm-hmm. you know, the, the torturing of folks in Chicago. My neighbors, I mean, I live in that community. Mr. Ross's house is like four blocks from Homan Square, mm-hmm. right? So when I was living with Clyde Ross, I was right around the corner from Homan Square. The interviews that ta Coates did with Mr. Ross to write the case for reparations were done in that house while I was living in it. I met ta Coates on a number of occasions wow. during that process. Did you know that, Dave? I think so. I, I had I knew he was around. I didn't know like yeah. I didn't hear that sentence you like that. But, it up, but yeah. I had a sense. I, I just got to chop it up with him a couple weeks ago. He, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, cool, yeah, 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 cool, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. my guy. You know, yeah, he's the he's the shit. <laughs> he's been he's been hugely influential yeah. for for me. I'm sure he doesn't remember me, but it's just like <laughs> you know, yeah, like I 
got the chance to spend some time with him. The fact that that story broke in May of 2014, then Mike Brown gets killed in Ferguson, August of 2014. Mm. At this point, I'm already living in North London, living with Mr. Ross, recently met ta Coates. I see the Ferguson thing happen. I'm basically all in, yeah. you know, in terms <laughs> politically. Yeah. Like, if Mike Brown got shot on Flournoy Street in front of Mr. Ross's house, we all would have been yeah. there. I mean, yeah. in my reality, my headspace at that time, th- I had not met Let Us Breathe yet. I had not done any of this organizing. There was no surge chapter right. in Chicago. Right, right, right. But I, I just knew that, you know, based on Mr. Ross's history, based on redlining in North Lawndale, you know, the work of the Contract Buyers League, the civil rights legacy that I was steeped in, that I saw as my mentor role model, I knew that, that what was happening again, just it just rhymed. You know, it yeah. just sounded like, here we go again. Yeah. Um, you know, Martin Luther King was in North Lawndale right. in 1966. Right. Yeah. We celebrated the 50-year anniversary of the Chicago Freedom Summer at Freedom Square. Because right. right. 2016 was 50 years after yeah. 1966. And, and so the parallels of this, that's the part, you know, you asked me earlier about, you know, what was it that, that set me on this path? Like, these experiences, mm-hmm. this kind of historical moment was just felt completely unique and it, I just couldn't believe it was happening. That speaks a little bit to the faith side of things. It's like, yeah. if I believe that I'm called to be in a certain place at a certain time and circumstance, like the only interaction I have with God is the circumstances of my life, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And when things start to kind of dominoes start to fall in that direction, Mr. Ross invites me to an event where I'm sitting next to you, mm-hmm. you know? Next thing you know, like here we are marching at Dante Servant's house uh, remembering Rakia Boyd, mm-hmm. you know, pulling a wagon full of books and signing petitions to get him fired and whatever. You know, and next thing you know, my garage is full of Let Us Breathe stuff. And uh, <laughs> le- next thing you know, we're living in tents at Freedom Square. Next thing you know, you're moving into breathing room at Tsukasa. Right. I mean, it, it, that... But what does your next thing mean going to the Congo and Haiti? Like, what, what's that pivot? So for me, th- there's, there's no way I would be doing the work that I'm doing now, at least not doing it well, without the, <laughs> without the time that I spent you know, at Freedom Square and, and the humility that I learned from being part mm, of this, this mm. movement. Not, and I'm not saying that's a, that's a period, that's a comma, right. you know, right. like everybody's a work in progress, myself most of all. Like there's no stopping that journey that, you know, I'm still very imperfect in the work that I'm doing in Haiti, the work that I'm doing in Congo. I wish I was a, a perfect pillar for everybody and, and I'm never going to be that. Mm-hmm. So here's what I got. Let's do what we can, um, which is the same attitude I brought to Freedom Square. Yeah. I'm going to try my best. If you try your best, we'd probably get it done. So why'd you decide is really what I'm asking to go do yeah. that work there? Because you're so place, you were so place-based and block by block specific. Yeah, totally. And that's that's been a real tension for me <laughs> um, to be so heavily invested in Chicago, in North Lawndale, in this work, and to be a million miles away, you know, mm-hmm. halfway across yeah. the world. Um, and, that's, and I remember even during Freedom Square, you'd be like, uh, well, no, I'm going to be out of town yeah. Wednesday to Friday, Yeah, but Saturday I'll spend all day. It's like, yeah. how are you managing? <laughs> I think out of like the 47 days of Freedom Square, like I slept there probably 40 nights and I had to make two business trips during Freedom Square, like one to Denver <laughs> and one to Vermont. And like, I don't know if you guys even knew I was gone, but I was, yeah, it was yeah, like, it was, it was known. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no, I mean, I, I, the, the decision to do what I'm doing now I started a cooperative in 2017 called the Social Justice Design Cooperative, justdesigncoop.org. Um, it's a worker-owned cooperative. There's seven of us, engineers, architects, designers, taking our skills and putting them at, at the service of environmental justice communities. Hmm. We're tired of this dynamic where, like, there's a pile of crap on the Chicago River that's, like, giving everybody asthma and nobody knows what to do about it. Like, bringing engineering, architecture, design skills and services at affordable prices 
into communities that need them. Mm. Um, so we're working with Lavejo, we're working with Perro, we're working awesome. with, um, I don't know if we need to do acronyms here, but yeah. So yeah, Lavejo, we had Juliana Pino on a Perfect. while back, so that's mm-hmm. a good entry point into the work yeah. happening in Little Village with them. Perfect, yeah, People for Community Recovery mm. and um, yeah, Alcal Gardens um, mm. as a client. Doing that work from the grassroots. You know, at the time I was also working for this company in, in Haiti, which in many ways is a reflection of my values, right? Because I talked earlier about, you know, being in the cubicle farm, you know, of a consulting firm, you know, I have yeah. an engineering degree, right? And doing engineering work is is meaningful to me. I think, you know, having infrastructure is kind of a metaphor for justice, right? Mm-hmm. So in the electric grid, at least in America, mm-hmm. everybody's connected to this electric grid, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have a hurricane or something. What, hap- what, what hurts one of us hurts all of us in some abstract way, whatever. <laughs> so we all expect to have clean drinking water, you know, Flint is is a is a problem that we can kind of, even if abstractly, we can all we all recognize that what happened in Flint was was terribly unjust, and it was primarily an engineering problem. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as politicians pretending to be engineers, but but putting recklessly jeopardizing human health. You know, and so without those fundamental ingredients of infrastructure, we don't have life as we know it. And the dirty water in Flint reminds me of the dirty water in Haiti, Congo, Sierra Leone, all the places that I've been working. At the same time, somebody needs to go do it. You know, so somebody <laughs> needs to like get off, get off the couch and like go do something about mm-hmm. it. Again, not white savior stuff, not like trying to be like the triumphant, you know, whatever. But um, last year, I started a, a company called Beyond the Grid. I'm the only employee. It's just Beyond the Grid. <laughs> that's me. Um, and 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 what I want to do is I want to take the the way that that we experience infrastructure in the U.S. and make it possible for folks. I mean, you know, it's 2019 and, um, you know, if the health clinic doesn't have power, you know, babies are being born by candlelight. Like mm-hmm. that, that's, right. an, that's an issue. Every health outcome is made worse when you don't have access to clean water, oxygen, if you need mm-hmm. a surgery, yeah. whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess to back up a little bit and just put it quite simply to you, necessity is the mother of invention, right? right. It's just kind mm-hmm. of a, a catchy mm-hmm. phrase. And as an engineer, if I think I'm an inventor, if I think I'm going to be creative about something, um, privilege is a huge barrier mm. to invention. Necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. Those of us with the most privilege have the least necessity. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the people, I mean, the next... Similar to like the, the, the uh, plantation tr- tradition that gets erased of like many of the household goods and like fieldwork goods were like created by slaves trying to... yeah you know, just get through their day of labor. Right. And like, we don't talk about it as much. So, right. that, yeah, that resonates. Right. The person who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey has been erased. Right. Right. You know, quite <laughs> well, and Someone... he needed some whiskey <laughs> to get through that. Day. Yeah. I think they just launched actually a whiskey, a company owned by a black woman that's named for him. That's true. remember what it's called. That's true. I was just uh, talking about this the other we day. We can't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so fine. <laughs> so, so, to, so to back up three steps, you know, yeah, yeah. if we believe necessity is the mother of mm-hmm. invention, then it's a huge injustice. You know, that the, the folks, you know, who have so much creativity, every time, I, every time I'm doing work, you know, in Africa, Kenya, I mean, we're looking at, looking at folks in Congo who we wanted to hang Wi-Fi routers on a lot of our telephone poles in the electric grid. We wanted to provide both Wi-Fi and electricity in the town. And guys just like out of like PVC pipe and like rubber cement and chewing gum, whatever, they had like a waterproof container to mount a Wi-Fi router on top of a power pole mm-hmm. and, and tap the pole and power the Wi-Fi router. <laughs> and then with a cell phone app, they were going around the town and determining how far the signal would reach and then hanging the next router, you know, like, <laughs> like instantly, like, and, and I, and I, 
think that this is this is what I talk about with necessity of the mother of invention. Like folks in these in these areas, you know, despite you know how they're characterized, you know, by our president and how they're characterized in our media and how we were taught to think of them. And how they're taught to think of themselves. There's a powerful opportunity for for folks in that community to teach the rest of us how to do things. Mm-hmm. You know, many of these countries will never have landlines; only have cell phones. I would hope that many of these countries never have coal plants; they only have solar. Right? right? Never mm-hmm. have centralized grids with nuke plants, coal plants that pollute the environment and exacerbate climate change. That they actually do it from the ground up, mm-hmm. and they don't have to deal with ComEd, which mm-hmm. is a huge company right. in a capitalist world that's not accountable. Mm-hmm. But they actually own their own utility. Right. right. You know, it's not about replicating the same thing we have here. It's about replicating the same like access without the system, exactly. and and, the you, and you don't have to reform something that wasn't already instituted. Oh, ex- so exactly. That, so there's right. A, if a, we knew a radical possibility, yeah, no one would build. It would not make sense to build the thing we have now when the thing we have now is like the biggest yeah. problem. <laughs> right. So, yeah. If a hur- if a hurricane hits the towns in Haiti where we built the grid, right? The grid was built by the people who live in those towns. You know, a hurricane comes through, God forbid, knocks down the poles. The people who live next door have the skills and the know-how to put the poles back up again, mm-hmm. you know? And, and and that's a little bit utopian because obviously funding is a thing and materials are a thing. Yeah. But, but the point is that the skills and expertise reside in the same communities where the infrastructure resides. Mm-hmm. We've gotten mm-hmm. so far away from that here in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, engineers have caused <laughs> climate change. En- engineers caused the mechanization of warfare, drone warfare. Mm-hmm. So many things in our society today are a result of people kind of worshiping technology as an end unto itself. As opposed to a tool. Without recognizing that engineering is fundamentally a service-driven profession. And so if we're not meeting the real needs of real people, then then there's no point. That's what really intrigues me about engineering as a concept and a practice. There's one end of it that is so existentially present that we all get it right so like you talking about water and power those are human survival needs that pretty much anybody on the globe they can resonate but i think most people like me are limited in like a technical understanding of of what really means and and what it goes on so like we use engineering kind of in this like social metaphor like right we say scarcity is artificially engineered and we use that language that language really or social engineering right right and 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 then it resonates with just the needs that are being met because that is what our platform is, right? Like that's what Freedom Square was about. It was, you know, we do not need carceral institutions to survive. Mm-hmm. And we invested those at the expense of the things that we do need to survive. It's really a per- perverse equation. Right. For you who has this technical knowledge that most people probably don't have a vocabulary for, yeah. what is your ideal impact as an engineer different from like, you know, it's not getting rid of the police, which, you know, we want a world without militarism at large. But but as you're traveling the globe in this place where need is so prevalent, yeah. what are some of the ideal? And I started to hear you talk towards it about like the, you know, not going coal and all of that. Right. I, I'm going to draw an analogy here between my uh, between what. So Paulo Freire is a person who wrote Shout Pedagogy out. of the Oppressed. Right. So a lot of people are familiar with his work. Is that on the book list? Mm-hmm. Yes. So pedag- Check out the Ergo reading list at ErgoRadio.com. <laughs> right. So, so Paulo Freire, when he wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed, the, the, the reason why he has a pedagogy is because he was a teacher. And the reason why he was a teacher is he's teaching literacy in Brazil. Right. But, but not in Sao Paulo. I mean, he's, he's teaching literacy in the Amazon, yeah. right, to the least literate indigenous people. And he was having extraordinary results with his literacy program. Why was he doing that? Well, because he wasn't starting with like A is for Apple, whatever. Like he was starting with the law of land ownership in Brazil. And if you don't know how to read this, somebody's going to take your land 
cut down your trees and there's going to be some sugar cane here, right? So if you want to teach somebody how to read, teach them about land tenure, teach them about land redistribution, teach them about the deed to their own land that they live on, right? And they're going to learn real fast how to read, right? (laughs) Right. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? Mm. Also, flip that around for a minute and think about what it would look like instead of doing literacy education to do engineering through a pedagogy of the oppressed, right? You wouldn't start in Chicago. You, You would start in Haiti, and you'd say, you guys want to have your cell phone charged? Let's talk about that, you know? Mm. And um, <laughs> next thing you know, you've got, in the case of my work in Haiti, you've got four microgrids serving 20,000 people, and I'm not in Haiti, and the power's still on. So people have figured out mm. how to run a utility company without calling the capital city, you know, without ComEd. Wow. Um, and that's possible. Yeah. And Again, it's not it's not a hero story. It's just the heroes of the story are the people who live in Haiti. Yeah. You know, I showed up for, you know, 18 months and they are in control of their power. Oh, but system. I love grounding that in that pedagogy. That's so cool. Yeah. The hardest thing for me in that is I don't have role models. I, I don't <laughs> have engineers that I can point to yeah. at this time in my life and say, that's the Paulo Freire of engineering, right? Yeah. I, I don't. I, in, in, I know some great That's lawyers. So I know some great doctors. I know some great educators. You know, yeah, yeah. CPS. Even some on great, strike the, some right great now. theologians. I mean, yeah. Some great, right. like in every. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, liberation theology wasn't done in a you know at a monastery or at a right. university campus. Uh-huh. Liberation theology was done in the heart of the struggle. But liberation most, engineering, <laughs> right? That's what you said, right? No, exactly, exactly. Yeah. What is the liberation theology? What is the pedagogy? of the oppressed in the context of engineering and technology. And we, at 2019, we don't have the book to read on that. Oh yeah, would just go read Pedagogy. No, there's, there isn't that book yet. Would you consider trying to write it? God, if, if, if that's the result of my, of my career and my life, that would be, yeah. That, there's, no, there's no higher goal. I mean, it'll, that, it'll, that really, be, it'll really bump our podcast numbers. <laughs> well, well I, can't, I can't write that book until I've walked Finished. the walk. But right? yeah. start. So, yeah, and, you can and start. So, right? Seriously. Seriously, start. So it's been, yeah. Even if it never gets out, but just for the practice of it. No, totally. Because the amount of intention that you've worked through is the kind of thing that people need help with. The same way you're saying that there isn't that text for you. Yeah, the next person also needs it too. Right. I, I really like the ideas of of not having role models. Yeah. Um. That 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 just struck a chord. You you brought it up. We didn't really talk about surge as much uh-huh. uh, but I think that was like you know I think our relationship was like two prong bringing in the Emmaus house and like that communal feel and like the resource of the actual home so yeah. Surge is standing yeah. up for racial justice right and showing, like showing up, showing up. and like in, in, it, in its origin uh, <laughs> you know it was never explicitly, but in practice, it was mostly white. I'm, I'm, I think mm. they've wrestled. Yeah, this is this was a tension between the Chicago group and the national group, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so this whole timeline, brief tangent, but mm-hmm. this whole timeline, you know, you and I bump into each other in October of 2014, right after Ferguson, and 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 then in December of 2014, I finally said to Surge USA, showing up for racial justice USA, we don't have any leadership here in Chicago. Like, if you need to, just put my personal email address on your website. But we need to form a Surge group in Chicago. And if you don't have anything, let's start it. So they did. Frankberg at gmail.com is like on the Surge National website. <laughs> and then as of March 20, oh, whatever, you get a few more emails now. God, imagine the white email tone on those. <laughs> so we yeah. have this, this new theory around white email tone, oh, but people emailing Surge for the first time <laughs> seems like... We'll, we'll talk about it off there. That was, that was my email account yeah, yeah, yeah. From, from December to March. Then we started Surge in, in March of Any anonymous particular gems from those introductory emails of people just saying things that you're like, oh my goodness. Nothing I'm going to remember <laughs> okay, right now. But, but my, my question then is, so in engineering, there are no role models, but 
Surge is a very explicit space. And it's in this tension of it is the space that kind of justice demands. But also when it comes together, it looks interesting. Right. Like, I mean, right. Like you have to like you, we, we have to trust it. Right. Like it has to like earn its trust. You know, gateway drug. Right. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's it's like it's your way in. Right. Um, hmm. We got into trouble at Surge for a number of reasons. One was kind of gatekeeping where mm-hmm. the person who writes that email isn't really the person who was ever interfacing with Let Us Breathe directly. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, there was definitely internal strife in the organization of like who's getting that FaceTime with Asada's daughters or BYP mm-hmm. or Let Us Breathe. And you kind of became a facilitator and, and a conduit and there in certain yeah, ways. Yeah, well, by necessity, yeah. um, that basically the, the, the philosophy was the least amount of effort should be required on the part of the, the organizers uh, of color in these black-led organizations, you know, in order to have people show up to your protest or in order to have like a responsive organizing partner it should be not that much work for you. And so we went through existing relationships and people who trusted each other already, and then we cultivated future trust. Also within Surge, other problematic things like, you know, sexism shows up, heterosexism shows up. You know, even even myself, I mean, I was, you know, within Surge, we were having very serious conversations about, you know, what does it look like to have, you know, male leadership? We even had, I mean, in our meetings, we we used an app that said, how much are men talking? And so we recorded <laughs> at every Surge meeting for about a year, how much airtime was taken up by male-identified voices and non-male-identified voices. Wow. Um, as What's a, that app? Uh, I think it was even How Much Are Men Talking. Because <laughs> that, that might even be what it's called. So there's there's all sorts of ways that, you know, everybody has wounds, everybody has woundedness, mm-hmm. and, and that plays out, you know, in whatever space you're in. There's no... It's armentalkingtomuch.com. And yeah, so, on so, this podcast, yes, yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah. But thanks for listening. Um, <laughs> but did you have the idea of role model, right? Like... You know, I, I hear you naming the Catholic worker tradition yeah. and then, you know, the liberation theology. And mm-hmm. a lot of that is rooted in like the global yeah. South and like the black church. Yeah. Uh, but particularly this like internal contradiction. We are privileged by white supremacy and anti-blackness, but we are going to show up yeah. to the resistance to those systems. Are there role models or examples or a lineage that you yeah. find that work in? In addition so, to Doris Day. You know? Yeah, Dor- Dor- Dorothy Day for sure. <sighs> Twice, oh for two. Um, <laughs> Dor- Doris Day was an actress. <laughs> Dorothy Day f- for sure. And then, you know, Oscar Romero, he was the, the Archbishop of El Salvador, was was assassinated by mm-hmm. the government with a U.S.-funded and U.S.-trained death squad. Um, but, yeah, so in that context, yes. I mean, in engineering, not so much. Um, but in, in, like, medicine, I mean, this is... Maybe a little bit cliche. I hesitate to to mention it, but Dr. Paul Farmer, you know, is a, is a guy who started an organization called Partners in Health. He's been very active in in Haiti, working on infectious oh, disease. God. The one the one engineering role model that I will share um, in response to the question is a guy named Ben Lindner. Very obscure, but if you Google Ben Lindner, um, this guy graduated from University of Washington with a mechanical engineering degree in the early '80s hmm. and moved down to Nicaragua and worked for the Sandinista-controlled power company. So the Sandinistas were uh, basically far left-wing revolutionary movement. They took control of the country, and they were reinventing the the Central American country during the Cold War, you know, with with what resources they had. And here's this, like, 20-something-year-old white Jewish guy from, uh, you know, from the Pacific Northwest, like, Comrade Lindner, you know, whatever, (laughs) like... And he worked on hydroelectric projects in the in the the very rural areas of Nicaragua, right along the Honduran border, where the U.S. of course was fund, funding the Contras, the, and they were coming in and doing like death squad raids across the border. 
So Ben Lindner got a power plant working in a town called El Qua. I read his autobi- his his biography. Um, it says that the, the the hydroelectric plant began working and the lights came on in the town on the day I was born, November twenty third, nineteen eighty five, which is like one of those moments where I like dropped the book and I was like, what? <laughs> so, so this dude, before Engineers Without Borders organization yeah. existed, before any of that even existed, this dude on his own moved down to Nicaragua to work for the power company and started mm. getting renewable energy working behind enemy lines in the 80s, wow. like on my birthday. And then um, <laughs> he was he went moved from that project to another project and the Contras raided it and, yeah, shot him in the head mm. on the job site of mm. his hydroelectric dam. Like he died in the pond, like in the, in the river that he was trying to, to harness for energy. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a lineage. So that's my, that'll be my one engineering role model Here's for the show Here's a little bit today. of a callous question, but I think it's coming out of- Shout out to him. That's a Yeah, no, that's definitely a, shout out to him. Coming out of that as a lineage, do you worry about being shot by U.S. funded opposition forces? <laughs> well, yeah. Or anyone else funded yeah, opposition forces? I mean, forces? yeah, that's a, that's a weird question. We're going we to put some money in there. <laughs> <laughs> you could just say U.S. <laughs> Might not be our game, but we got a few dollars on it. Uh, <laughs> we got five on that, cool. It's a, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now, and now I have to actually answer that. Um, no, I think I, I think it's a weird question. You know, I, I guess what I would say is, um, no, I don't have aspirations of martyrdom. I don't not aspirations, concerns. I mean, yeah, very much so. I'm going into an area that's been, you know, th- I've traveled twice this year now into U.S. State Department level four travel advisories. You know, when I was working in Haiti in March. Haiti is very active right now. They're trying to overthrow the president. Yeah. There's a very robust resistance movement nationwide. And I was and I traveled in and out of Haiti during a period when the State Department said US citizens should not be entering Haiti. And same with DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. This will be my fourth trip this year into that country during a level that is four wild. travel advisory. And I'm traveling to the specific province where this Ebola outbreak is is active mm-hmm. and where there's armed uh, resistance movements happening. The armed resistance movements have attacked the Doctors Without Borders clinics, which is part of the reason why the response has been a little bit slow is because the medical workers have been shot at and their clinics have been destroyed by armed groups. Mm. And so for you, it's that, I'm trying to figure out then, I know the the macro motivation, but it's like yeah. there are a lot of places to to do this work. Why there? I mean, the, the the superficial answer as a consultant is that's where my client is. But you know, I mean, and <laughs> I'm not I'm not going out and actively seeking yeah. like the right. coolest chapter right. of the no, biography. Look, this is... <laughs> like that's not what this is about. But but what it is is like that's where the need is. Right. Right. I didn't live in Lawndale, you know, because I was you know, I, again like looking for another like a cool zip code. Like I, I live in Lawndale because I think that's where I can really make a difference. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. they say people choose their neighborhoods for their school district or whatever. Well, you know, if if you're a Catholic worker, you you better choose a neighborhood where you, <laughs> where like you actually are are not problematic. Yeah. You can actually find a, a really authentic way to be part of that the fabric of that community. You know, and not just like take selfies and. I have a closing question to go into checkout in the game. Mm. You've talked a lot about meeting need and about 98% of it has been external yeah. and the needs of others. Yeah. Um, and I think you grounded some of that in like having a pr- privileged position, which is understandable. Uh, but whether it's spiritually, whether it's materially, whether it's just like your own development and aspirations, yeah. uh, what is a need for yourself that you can work or want to work to meet? Yeah, so many. Um, <laughs> really good question. Um, you know, I was I, fishing for one. <laughs> one, uh, 
one abstract need is to have some of this be relevant to somebody. So thanks for putting me on a podcast. <laughs> um, but um, no, I mean, I think I think within myself, you know, I struggle with you know adequacy. Like, how do you how do you feel that this is all enough? You know, what what's the point? You know, part of the reason why I'm going to be in like whatever you know, ten out of twelve weeks in Africa. Obviously, if I felt like felt like I had it all figured out. I wouldn't need to take so many flights, you know. I mean, <laughs> the the t- convincing myself that, you know, it's time to take a break, you know, time to slow down and and then making myself, you know, vulnerable and accessible to others in my life, you know. Mm. Where is the, you know, the true mutuality in in the yeah. in the relationships that we've had with Let Us Breathe, there's been obvious mutuality in terms of it's not all just give, 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 take, take, take. A lot of it was share, you mm-hmm. know? And hmm. the experience of Freedom Square was not one of giving and taking. It was one of sharing mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And and in my, even though y'all had keys to my house, like, <laughs> and, and, yeah, whatever, you know, like I'd wake up. And, I'm, sure, wait, I'm, I'm sure my cousin took some shit out of it. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there was some taking. <laughs> I, still have, I still have one one pot that I have in my house that was I haven't thrown away out of like nostalgia. One of the times that someone came and shared at my house, I don't even remember who it was. They were like, oh, I was like, help you cook something, whatever. Just destroyed this pot. I don't uh, even know how it was possible, but it's just like a level of burnt on the uh, bottom <laughs> that will never be <laughs> never be redeemed. But I'm keeping. But it for but, but that there was there was mutuality. So yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think what it is, yeah, in terms of needs, you know, and there, there's many, and and you know, it, it is just that this stuff would be something that that's shared, and that you know, at some point, that there's there's a genuine relationship where people can bring their whole selves into this work, um, whether it's resistance work in Chicago, whether it's anti-oppressive work racial justice work, all of which is desperately needed, you know, and then also the the kind of intersection with kind of global need as well and do that in a responsible way. I would never be able to do the work that I'm doing with integrity if I hadn't first learned integrity in Lawndale mm. and integrity in Let Us Breathe. <laughs> I mean, the only way there is the way through the mess, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. one of my one of my quotes from my journal from Freedom Square is like, yeah, Freedom Square is messy, and that's because freedom is messy. Um, <laughs> you know, there's not like if we want to embrace and lean yeah. into anarchism, lean into mutual aid, and lead into solidarity. You're also leaning into like lack of control, you know, lack of clean, sterilized solutions, <laughs> and and that's I guess the world that that we're living in. Yeah. Wow. All right. Let's let's check out and play a little game. Yeah. This has been great. So the checkout is just uh, one thing from our conversation that's sticking with you. Uh, or how just are you how feeling? feeling right now? Yeah. Or a thread that we didn't quite like get to that's kind of hanging loose. Yeah, something you want to talk about? I'm feeling great. I love talking to you guys. I thought this was a really cool conversation. One of the cool parts for me was reminiscing about early days, first contact between myself <laughs> and Emmaus House and Let Us Breathe. And just to remember like the, the kind of liminal space that that was, the yeah. like, you know, kind of like sweaty palms and goosebumps yeah. of all of that. You know, <laughs> looking back on where we sit today versus how we got here. Five years ago. is just wild. Yeah. You know, I had the chance to speak at the five-year celebration mm-hmm. for Let Us Breathe Collective. And yeah, it, it, it's a story that I couldn't have written yeah. myself. Yeah. So it's, it's really a blessing and a gift. <laughs> what you got? I am, as I have been the whole time we've known each other, wowed by your embodiment. It's a big deal. I've just seen you give more than I'm willing to give. <laughs> and I say that not in a, like, to put yeah. myself down or big you up. Like, I just know the line that you've drawn, the shower curtain that you've put up <laughs> is farther than I, in those moments, have been willing to give myself. So um, it's aspirational. It's in some ways challenging, but it has been 
like useful and meaningful and yeah no i i i admire it yeah thank you yeah I'm, i mean i'm coming from a, a deep place of love and admiration and appreciation uh i was not like as profound or eloquent as I thought I would be. Cause, cause you know, cause we, we do a lot of these conversations and, and few of them have as much connection at, you know, as, as this, especially as we moved on. Um, so I, you know, there was more I wanted to say, yeah. but I, but I will ground it in, I think the importance of your story, um, how much I see you as a part. Right. And, you know, We've talked a lot about like breaking the idea of allyship and how limited that language can be. And I think you, like Kiss said, embody that in many ways. Uh, We didn't even get to like the breathing room connection and the fact that like, you know, your relationship to Sukasa, you and Lydia is a big part of how we have that space and how significant I think that space, that's how significant that space is for me and how much I feel it is significant for for movement history. Uh, So I'm really glad that we had this conversation um, yeah, listeners and, don't eat, won't even yeah, be able to know all the ways. Yeah, yeah, it, but but you know, I, trust us. <laughs> I, I wanted to to gather your story, but also intentionally appreciate you uh, because I, I see you actively take steps back, even maybe in times where like you have something to offer, right? And uh, I admire it, but also I think erasure is problematic across the spectrum in liberatory space. Privilege, even if that privilege intersects with whiteness does not mean that work and benefit should be erased. And not just because, oh, hunky-dory, like, I love you, hug, feel good about yourself, here's some ego, Damon's begging you up, which I'm also doing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, to that idea of the archive or to the fact that, like, you don't have a role model, we need to document these stories because I think the, the, the interjection you made earlier is that it's easy to say, oh, I don't have it figured out, mm. and it's not my fight, mm. theoretically, so I'm not going to show up. Um, and so the example... I think for the world of how you showed up is really important, but primarily for me, um, you've showed up in ways that I really admire and have allowed our work to grow in ways that we cannot measure. So thank you. Thank you very much. I, I love and appreciate you. Yeah. Uh, and Man, yeah. Honor. Yeah, it's yeah, totally yeah, an honor. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a great person. All right. Time to switch up that tone. Got that shit out shit the way. got soft. <laughs> it's time to get real in here. Ergo Radio, oh, Ergo man. Podcast, beep, 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 Ergo beep. Media, <laughs> Ergo Fucking. No, I'm just. <laughs> I'm just gonna put some some messiness on here because you're so clean. Um, <laughs> you are clean. For someone <laughs> clean as a whistle. For someone who travels yes. so much and shares their throw house some, and shares throw their some profanity in, in there. No, no, you no. Are clean we're not gonna make you. We're not gonna make you curse, but we are gonna make you start beef. Beef is our playful yet intentional accountability tool and or weapon mm-hmm. up here at Ergo. When he emailed me back, he was like, are you going to make me start beef with a rapper? <laughs> it was R&B singers. Was the sect of the world that ran amok? However. We have moved beyond. We have expanded to a whole time that has ran amok. And that time is the 20th century. 21st even. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. no, no, no. For our game. For our game. The 21st the game. century is running amok. I agree. Yeah. But okay. just because it is, it, is fi- it is completed, 1900 to 1999, Yeah. beef with the 20th century, any historical moment, person, fact, policy, rapper, R&B singer, <laughs> the door is wide open, personal experience, bully, anything that happened or existed wow. or occurred in the 20th century, historical, mundane, otherwise. Beef. Frank, go. First is cheating, but beef with myself. I was an eighth grade bully 
And I think a lot, a lot of my, a lot of that's my what the story is. Social justice work. We got to the this heart is, of this it. This is all just you trying comes to make up. Yeah. from, yeah, no, intentionally. <laughs> I mean, disparaging. Yeah, that's after eighth grade and, and in high school, trying to trying to figure out what it was like to be somebody who leads with integrity. And wow. Whatever. So, so that's a that's a beef with like 1999 Frank Burr. Um, <laughs> That's still 20th. Right like, at the cusp. Yeah. It's like the Spider-Man <laughs> pointing me. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I, I guess, yeah, one, one that one that immediately comes to mind would, ha- would have to be, um, yeah, U.S. neo-imperialism in, just in general. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the, the 20th century is when, when that became for real. Like, the, U- the U.S. was a colony once, and then we kind of missed missed out on the wave. And so the, the Cold War interactions between the U.S. and everywhere else on Earth, you know, I guess that that means beef with Henry Kissinger. That means beef yep. with Ronald Reagan. That yep. means beef with so many people. Yep, you're doing it. Um, but uh, you get it. You know. But uh, <laughs> right there. yeah, like having worked in the countries where we destabilized democratically elected mm. governments mm. that were idealistic and people like like so talking about Chile, 1973. You know, Pinochet dictatorship. Pinochet was trained in the U.S. Right. Was mentored by U.S. armed forces. Was funded. Uh, by Henry Kissinger and took over Chile. Salvador Allende committed suicide during the invasion. You know, Jacobo Arbenz uh, was knocked out of power in uh, in Guatemala. You know, you have, you have it, the, you know, Oscar Romero, who I've mentioned as a hero of mine, was assassinated in El Salvador. Uh, this is the story of this history that in 100 years, if we're still telling the history, that's what that time is going to be known for. And we just went to school too early <laughs> yeah. but like that is the history that's what of we that. were doing. Like, that's what was happening that's right. what impacted that's the story to tell right. that neo-colonialist enterprise is why we have an immigration problem right. you know why we have a you know economic dislocation problem mm-hmm. i guess is the way we would talk about it and that's the reason why um you know a lot of the work that i've done through nonprofits like engineers without borders is just cleaning up after sloppy u.s foreign policy hmm. like going to places where the u.s removed the democratically elected folks who would have gotten clean drinking water and would have built highways and would have built power grids, replacing them with strong men, dictators in Washington's pocket. And now here we are in 2019 sending nonprofits to go clean it up. Mm. Well, they get paid twice that way. <laughs> Indeed. Instead of just maybe once. Yeah. Indeed. All right. That, that was quality beef. That's some quality That's... neo-imperialism beef. Yeah, you did it well. A little too big. But... <laughs> no, 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 no. The game is too big. Okay. Right. <laughs> this podcast was too big. Thank you so much, Frank. Is there anything um, you want to make sure gets added that we haven't mentioned? And Working. how can uh, folks find you in the ways you want to be found? Let's say there's mm-hmm. someone listening in the Gambia who wants to build a grid right now. How can they get in touch? Wow. I actually turned down a contract in the Gambia a couple months ago. <laughs> That's your um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish there. I wish I was making that up. You're, um, uh, you're in a uh, yeah, you're so, just in opposition to definite articles. You're like, yeah. if you're a Gambia, I'll go. <laughs> the Congo, a Gambia. Yeah. Um, no, my uh, my company's very small and under construction. Website is beyondthegrid.design. Other company, justdesign.coop, the cooperative that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Is, is Surge still like kind of pluginable? Sur- right Sur- Surge is not as vibrant as it once was. Mm-hmm. There's still somebody checking the email. It's not your email. <laughs> but it's not my email <laughs> these great, days. Great. So I, I've definitely leaned out mm-hmm. of, of any formal leadership with Surge since my travel schedule just makes yeah. it impossible. For, but for the fellow whites, is there anywhere that you would recommend they plug in? Yeah, I mean, uh, Surge is a starting point. Indivisible is a starting mm-hmm. point. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting folks, but yeah. yeah cool. Start there. Just get started. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming through. 
You bet. And we'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of our city and beyond for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Hey, Rosie. Yes, Daniel. Do you uh, listen to podcasts by any chance? Sometimes. Do you like how they sound? Not really. Well, you should really listen to podcasts on Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, not a single paywall. It's just a great podcast app for everyone, including you. Huh. You can get it for free on the App Store. Hey, Rosie. Yes, Daniel. Do you listen to podcasts? Sometimes. Do you like how they sound? Not usually. Well, you should really listen to your podcast on Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. How do you feel about exclusives? You know, where like you can only hear it in one place. I don't like that. How about like premium content where you have to pay extra for it? No, thank you. What about like a paywall where you can't even see what it is until you pay? Uh Uh-uh. Well, the good news is Overcast doesn't have any of those. It's just a great podcast app for everyone. Great. You can get it for free on the App Store.